0: Have a seat welcome again. We're glad that you're here. If you're a guest, we uh, especially uh, welcome you and glad you're with us. If you've got a Bible, let's go to Daniel chapter 9, and this is going to be the message in the book of Daniel that only deals with a few verses, so uh, hopefully this is a, a good week for you, although these are, are pretty uh, kind of densely packed, heavy-hitting uh, kind uh, of verses. And uh, we're going to, uh, as part of our response to this, be celebrating uh, communion at the end. So just keep that in mind. The elements are uh, under the chair in in front of you, unless you're on the front row and then they're under your chair. But we invite you to participate with us if you're a believer and in fellowship with the Lord. And so just be aware of that at the end. Okay, so uh, how many of you have heard of Yogi Berra? All right, most of you, now he was before my time, uh, believe it or not, there was a time before my time for some of you who are younger, but he's uh, a famous baseball catcher, He uh, he's in the Hall of Fame, but what he's most known for is goofy sayings, okay, just... Just goofy sayings. And so I'm going somewhere with this. I mean, if you want to know how Yogi Berra connects to Daniel chapter 9 and this prophecy, I mean, you can decide if it works. But let me just give you a few examples, okay? He said one time, it was impossible to get a conversation going because everybody was talking too much. Some of you will get that on your way home today. See, who's awake this morning. He said, I usually take a two-hour nap. From one to four. For those of you who are mathematically challenged, that would actually be a three hour nap, okay? He said, The future ain't what it used to be. I have no idea what that means. Um, He said, No one goes there nowadays, it's too crowded. (laughs) Baseball is 90% mental, 90%, and the other half is physical. He said, always go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't come to yours. (laughs) It'd be a little hard to pull off. Uh, He said, congratulations, I knew the record would would stand until it was broken. Kind of the master of the obvious. And here's my favorite one. One one day he was in spring training, they were playing, playing a spring training game. Came home, his family asked if anything interesting happened. He said, well, there was a streaker at the game today. And his son asked, well, was it a man or a woman? He said, I don't know. They had a bag over their head. (laughs) And then he said this, and this is kind of working towards. He says, it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. (laughs) It's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. Right? I mean, it's hard to know what's coming sometimes. I mean, you know, I I would have thought UT would have won out and made it into the playoffs. I was definitely wrong on my prediction about that one, unfortunately. You know, more seriously, I think back to the end of 2019 and like just thinking how awesome life was at that point in time, how great of a year 2019 had been uh, with having no idea that in the next few weeks that Robin would uh, be diagnosed with cancer and COVID would hit. A lot of times we have no idea what is coming, yet in the book of Daniel, we've seen and we'll see again today that we worship a sovereign God who rules and reigns from his throne, who knows and predicts the future, and really the only way that you can do that with with certainty and with perfection is if you actually control the future. And what we're going to see this morning in the book of Daniel is God giving a general outline of the future, of God showing what his redemptive plan for the world is in general. And then we're going to see a very specific prophecy even about the timing of the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, to die for our sins. Now, just a couple of quick things in review and in background. Remember, one of the things I've told you in Daniel that you know, part of the reason I believe this and really part of the reason I believe the Bible and believe in Jesus is because of the fulfilled prophecies in the Bible. And, and, and we talked about the fact that some people challenge Daniel on those grounds, but there's evidence to believe that was actually written uh, around 530 B.C. by Daniel and not in the first century. I gave you a few of those a few weeks ago. found another one since then that I want to share real quickly. Okay? This is in uh, Josephus, the, the Antiquities, uh, one of the books that he wrote. And, and, and he wrote this, he says, And when the book of Daniel was showed him, talking about Alexander the Great, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, he supposed that, that himself was the person intended. So, Alexander, uh, according to historians, you know, the Palestine was one of the places he conquered. He entered Jerusalem in the 330s. And according to Josephus, the Jewish scribes pulled out the book of Daniel and, and, and showed Alexander. And he said, that's me. And if they could do that in the 300s, it had to be written way before the first century B.C., now, with, with, with that said, remember what we've seen in Daniel 2, in Daniel 7, in, in, in Daniel chapter 8, that he's giving this outline of world history, that you have Babylon, then you have the Medo-Persian Empire, and, and then you have Greece, and, and then you have Antiochus Epiphanes. He's predicting these things in advance, which if he is, then we can trust him. And so we're going to see another prophecy like that today. Remember the context if, if you were here last week, if you weren't, just a quick review. So Daniel, in the early part of Daniel chapter 9, he's having his quiet time. He's reading the Bible. He's got his coffee and his journal and the scroll of Jeremiah rolled out. And he reads that this exile that they're in is going to last 70 years. And he remembers 1 Kings chapter 8 and that gives instructions on what you're supposed to do when the people of God are in exile because of sin, that you're to turn back toward Jerusalem and you're to pray and to confess sins and and you're to repent and and daniel's doing that in daniel 9 1 through 19 and he's asking god for his mercy on his people and have you ever prayed and gotten more than what you bargained for i have i mean I, i think about what god's done through our missions ministry yeah, I pray for that but it's more than what I bargained for praise God but it's also it's exciting but it's also a little overwhelming and that's basically what Daniel experiences here at, at the end of Daniel chapter 9 because he gets this, this vision this direction this explanation and it's beyond him bigger than him it's more than what he anticipated he's thinking about well the 70 years is almost up it's time to go back to the land we better get ready but God decides to show him beyond 70 years 70 times 7 we're going to see but really God is giving him a panoramic view of his redemptive plan for the ages and how he's going to fulfill it so this is what Daniel 9 20 through 27 says he says now while I was speaking praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. And we talked about this last week. Remember, that's not just Daniel. The Bible tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That even as the Father loves the Son, the Son loves us. You're greatly beloved in Christ. And when you pray, God hears your prayers as a greatly beloved child of God, just like you did with Daniel. He's not a special case. So he says, therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. And so here's the vision in these four verses. is what we're going to focus on this morning. So he says, 70 weeks. Let me just stop and say something there. So a little word association. If I say the word dozen, what do you say? 12. Okay. Uh, uh, dozen equals 12. Well, weeks in this context it's something called a heptad. It's a seven. It's what it is. It's used this way at times in the Old Testament. It could be days. It could be years. In the context here, it's years. So when we think about 70 weeks, it's 490 years. And we'll unpack this, but just think of it this way. So he says, 70 weeks are determined for your people, who's his people? Israel, the Jews, and for your holy city. What was their holy city? Jerusalem. So understand that that's the context of what he's talking about. That's the ultimate picture of all of this. To accomplish six things. In other words, Daniel's thinking, hey, we're just going to come back to the land. But God says, I'm going to do these six things. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. and Accomplish those six things. He says, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there should be seven weeks, which is how long in this context? 49 years. And then 62 weeks. Which, in this context, anybody really good with math off the top of your head? Um. (laughs) 434 years. Uh, So it says, The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And I'll show you that cut off means... He dies. Um, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with the flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And I think this is referring to the Antichrist that we've seen uh, periodically throughout this book and see again in, in chapter 11. Uh, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate and this is something uh, we've looked at this before but Matthew 24:15 Jesus spoke of the abomination of the desolation spoken of by Daniel uh, the, the prophet and so this was something that was future still even at the time of Jesus. I I think it's another one of these things uh, that's a dual fulfillment of a prophecy. It was fulfilled in some sense when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD and will be ultimately and completely fulfilled at the end of uh, time as we know it by the Antichrist. But we'll unpack that later. So, based on this background and what we've read in this scripture that I'll try to unpack for you, As we've done throughout this, conviction, action, Christ connection, I think the conviction that God wants us to take from this is that the world seems out of control, but God is fulfilling His sovereign plan of redemption through Jesus. The world seems out of control, but God is fulfilling His sovereign plan of redemption through Jesus. Listen, everything seems crazy. But in heaven, everything's running, right on schedule. God's got it planned. He's working everything out. If you don't believe that, let's unpack this prophecy. So there's five truths that I want to tell you here that I think kind of support, amplify, develop from these verses this conviction that I just shared. Number one, God's plan is certain to be fulfilled. God's plan is certain to be fulfilled. Notice the word here, the fourth word in in verse 24, determined. Seventy weeks are determined. It it literally means cut off or or cut out or uh, decided. It's basically like God cut out of history this special time frame to accomplish something in. He's decided, he's predetermined, he's wired things to make this happen. You say, I don't know about all that, everything seems crazy and out of control to me. But again, if, if God has fulfilled these prophecies in the past, can't we be confident that he's going to fulfill them in the future? God's plan is certain to be fulfilled. Number two, I want you to see that God's plan is timed to perfection. God's plan is timed to perfection. Again, everything is running right on schedule. In in a minute, I want to unpack this 69 weeks prophecy for you uh, just a a, a little bit, but let me read this to set it up. You remember in the New Testament, in Galatians chapter 4, it says, when the fullness of the time had come is when Jesus came. At, At God's Uh, exact, determined, opportune moment in history. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He says, The Lord God appointed a set time for the coming of His Son into the world. Nothing was left to chance. Infinite wisdom dictated the hour at which the Messiah should be born and the moment at which He should be cut off. His advent and His work are the highest point of the purpose of God. The hinge of history the center of providence, the crowning of the edifice of grace, and therefore peculiar care watched over every detail. Now, let's look at verses 24 and 25 for just a minute. So he says, 70 weeks, 490 years are determined to do these things. And then verse twenty-five, he says, "Know therefore and understand, <clears throat> excuse me, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, uh, sixty-nine weeks, four hundred and eighty-three years in total." Now, how did all of that work out? Well, okay, this is something that will give you a headache. All right, so let me just start with that, and, and, and there's a lot of things you can, you can read about it. There's articles on the internet. There's books that have been written about all of this, and so I'm going to try to boil this down into something hopefully digestible in less than five minutes, but it's a pretty amazing thing. Um, you know, honestly, I've spent a lot of time on this over the last two or three weeks, giving myself some headaches, I think, because I wanted to kind of settle where I stood on this for myself, and where I ended up today is not exactly where I've started. So the, the, there's, there's two things, two, two big questions to this, okay? So when it, when it says the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, when was that exactly? That's the first question. And then the second question is when exactly was Jesus born and crucified? Okay, now the date of Jesus' crucifixion, there's two, it's one of two dates we can say almost for certain. It was either April the 7th, AD 30, or April the 3rd, AD 33. And and, and there's reasons within scripture and history. And a lot of things that narrow it down to one of those two dates that I'm not going to go into all the details of. So, so that's one side of the equation. It's, it's which date do you use for kind of the end point of this But then there's the question of which date do you use for the beginning point of this? I mean, exactly what's it referring to when it says the command to restore and build Jerusalem? And and the reason there's some question about that is because the Jews went back and restored their land in stages. Remember, Cyrus decreed in around 538, 537 that they could go back. And under Zerubbabel, the book of Zechariah, they started trying to rebuild the temple. That didn't go real well. And then you've got Ezra, and then you've got Nehemiah. And so there's really, if you take this literally, and now some people would say this is just talking about symbolic periods of time, but I don't think that because I think it's too specific. But if you take it literally, you got to pick one of those dates. I, I believe that the date that you should go with is the decree from Artaxerxes one to Ezra in 457 B.C. Ezra 9.9 says this, He said, For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. That would say to me that he understood that he had a commission from the king to finish uh, the temple, to to repair it, but also to build a wall. Now, we know the building of the wall didn't go real great until uh, Nehemiah comes along about 12, 13 years later and actually gets the job done in 52 days. But, uh, you know, there he had a commission. So, why does all of this matter? Well, let me just try to put it together for you. So, If uh, Ezra had this commission to rebuild and restore the city, you take the first 49 years, the first seven weeks, that's going to bring you to about 408 B.C., okay? Now, that's going to fit the time frame of what it took for them to fully restore things. Then you take the 62 weeks, the 434 years, that would seemingly, when you add that to uh, that date that would seemingly bring you to 26 A.D., but It's really 27 A.D. because there's no zero year. You just pass from one BC to one A.D. And and, and so that's going to bring you uh, to 27 A.D. Well, if Jesus was crucified on April the 7th, A.D. 30, we know his ministry, his public ministry, lasted somewhere in the vicinity of three years. So you got go back three years from his crucifixion, and that's based on Passovers that are named uh, in in the Gospel of John. You go back three years, that gets you to 27 AD when you have Jesus being baptized and beginning his public ministry to reveal him as the Messiah. So you put all of that together, that gets you maybe not exactly definitively to the day, but very plausibly 483 years with this being fulfilled. Now, there's, again, different ways you can look at it, but here's what I think. I think if we knew all the details certainly, it would work out to the day. But I think you can work it out close enough, which is amazing, considering I mean, you're talking about something that was written over 2,500 years ago in ancient work to have this kind of detail. You can trust the Bible. You can trust that God's plan is time to perfection. And if his plan for the world is time for perfection, to perfection, and you're his child, his plan for your life is time to perfection too, even when it doesn't seem like it. So, number three, we see here that God's plan is massive in its scope. God's plan is massive in its scope. Again, verse 24, he says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to do six things, to finish the transgression, which means to bring an end to all human rebellion, to make an end of sins. In other words, to glorify his people, to to put away sin, to judge the ungodly to save and glorify the righteous, to establish His millennial kingdom, His eternal kingdom where there's no more sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. The cross, it's through the cross that all of this is accomplished to bring in everlasting righteousness. There's a day of righteousness coming. There's a day when sin is put away. There's a a day that's coming when Jesus comes back. The King is ruling and reigning and everything that we want, it it comes about, the light, lays down with the lamb there's peace and harmony and love and truth and righteousness and justice and all the things that we're looking for he says to seal up vision and prophecy meaning that every prophecy is fulfilled to anoint the most holy, which would mean the reestablishment of the temple that's talked about in uh, the book of of Ezekiel. In other words, Daniel thought he was praying about getting to go back to their homeland after 70 years in exile, but God showed him what H.C. Leupold calls the divine program of the ages. You see, God's plan is, What he's talking about here, yeah, he was going to bring about their physical exile from their land. But what he's saying in this verse is God's plan, his redemptive plan ultimately, is to bring about uh, the end to our spiritual exile, to restore the created order, and to establish his kingdom on the earth. To, to reverse the curse. To eradicate the effects of sin. To restore everything to the paradise that it was created to be. Remember we talked about this before. Christian worldview. There's creation. There's fall, everything's corrupted by sin, there's redemption, Jesus comes and dies. It talks about this here, it's prophesied here, it's predicted uh, down to the time of it here. But then someday he's coming back to, because he's redeemed us, to restore everything, to restore the creation, to establish his kingdom, to make things what they were originally created to be. That's God's ultimate plan. That he's fulfilling through Jesus. Leupold again has put it this way. He says, in these six statements, we have the sum of all good things that God promised to men perfectly realized. Listen, that's God's redemptive plan. And you may be like, I don't know how this could ever come about. Things are so crazy. Things are so out of control. Listen, if he fulfilled this prophecy about the first coming of Jesus, don't you think he's going to fulfill the prophecies about the second coming of Jesus? That's the point of all this. So number four, God's plan is centered in the atoning death of the Messiah. God's plan is. Is centered in the atoning death of the Messiah. Look at verse 26. He says, And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. He'll die, but not for himself. It's a gospel in half a sentence. The Messiah, Jesus, came to die, but not for him, for us. Here's how uh, the prophet Isaiah put it in Isaiah 53. He says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on the Messiah, the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the gospel, substitutionary atonement, that we deserve to go to hell, we deserve to die and be condemned for our sins, but Jesus took our condemnation, our punishment. Our sin was placed on him that it might be taken off of us. Our judgment was placed on the righteous one so that we could receive the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? And and here's that phrase, and just wanted to show you that it really means he died in context. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Listen, Jennifer, go back and put verse 6 on there again, if you would. I want you to think about this for a minute, especially if you're not a Christian. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Every one of us. You know that's true. You know you're not perfect. You know you've sinned. You know you've done wrong things. We've turned everyone to his own way. We've tried to do it ourselves. We've lived for ourselves. We've lived for our own way. But this is the good news. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Are you trusting Him and what He has done for you for the forgiveness of your sins? You see, the cross is the centerpiece of human history. The cross, sometimes we have this saying, we'll say that something is the crux of the matter. It's the heart of the matter. It's it's the point of it. You know what's interesting about that? The word crux comes from the Latin, and it's the word cross. The crux of the matter, the heart of the matter, the centerpiece of it all is, is the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, they wanted to be redeemed from their exile and be restored to their land. But see, Jesus died for them and for us to redeem us from our exile to him and restore us to a relationship with him you see Daniel was thinking one thing God had so much bigger See, a lot of times that's how we think. We think about a particular situation or circumstance, and we're wanting God to deliver us from that circumstance, to make things better, to bail us out. But God is thinking so much bigger. He wants to do more in and through us and for us. He wants to forgive us and redeem us and transform us and, and, and help us and make us who he wants us to be, to change us from the inside out. And then out of that, out of Christ in us, then we can deal with our circumstances. We get it backwards. But the cross is the heart of the matter. I think sometimes we take that for granted. We've been in church. We hear about it so much. But you know, the cross is an offensive message. You know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the message of the cross, the proclamation of the cross Is foolishness to those who are perishing. And and that's what people think. Why would you believe in that bloody religion? I mean, Alistair Begg says preaching the cross is like dying naked every week. Because it's not popular. It's offensive. I mean, again, we take it for granted. You know, Paul said, Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a crazy verse. I mean, why would you boast in torturous death by crucifixion? And I mean, boast is to brag, to worship, to exult in, to find your identity in. Why would you find your identity in a crucifixion? That's an offensive message. Why is the cross offensive? Well, because there's two doctrines combined up in, in, in the cross that are, are just hateful to our natural selves. One is the doctrine of original sin and depravity. Because the cross says that God is so holy and I am so messed up that it took the death of the Son of God for me to be forgiven. Now that runs against the narrative because the narrative is in most people's minds that if there's a God, He's a good God. And since He's a good God, He'll let good people into heaven and I'm good enough. Now, you may not be good enough, but I'm good enough. I'm a pretty good person by my standards and whatever standard we want to give. That's the narrative. The other thing that's hated, even amongst so-called Christians today, is the idea of substitutionary atonement. See, if you talk about the cross as a revelation of God's love, as Jesus as a martyr, Jesus as an oppressed uh, sufferer, you'll be popular. But if you say that the cross is not somehow giving us a boost, but it is our only hope, that it is our life, If we're saying that we are sinful and depraved and separated from God and hell bound, and the only intervention that can save us is the Son of God coming into the world, born of a virgin, living a perfect sinless life, dying and rising again, and the only way that I can be forgiven is by trusting Him alone, humbling myself, admitting my sin, my inability, my unworthiness, and finding my life in Him and taking up my cross And following him, what's popular and appealing about that? But here's the reality. He is the only way to God. He is the only way to God. If you say, I don't believe all that stuff, explain away these prophecies. Listen, at some point we have to decide. If we're going to be just all religious or if we're going to trust Christ alone and surrender our lives to him and follow him, say, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, come and take control of me. Jesus, you're my Lord. I'm going to live for you. I'm going to follow you in believer's baptism. I'm going to spend time with you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to repent of sins. Help me, change me, transform me. That's what it means to follow Christ. Are we trusting Him and what He's done in the cross? Are we boasting in the cross? Are we worshiping Christ crucified, finding our life and our identity in Him? In God's mind, it's the centerpiece of His entire plan. He's the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Is He the centerpiece of your life? This version of him. Not your version of him. Not buffet line Jesus where you can pick out what you want him to be. Pick out what you like. Call on him to bail you out when you want him to. Or is he your life? And then last. I want us to see in verses 26 and 27. That God's plan is culminated by the return of Jesus to judge his enemies and establish his kingdom. God's plan is culminated by the return of Jesus to judge his enemies and establish his kingdom. Now, you know I've tried to stay out of the weeds when it comes to some of the prophetic stuff in Daniel. Uh, some of you don't like that, you've told me. But uh, I'm going to get just slightly in the weeds here, but just quickly, okay? So what I believe, okay, my, my, my viewpoint on this is, that there is a rapture, that, that meaning Jesus removes the church, and then there's the tribulation period, and at the middle of which the Antichrist is revealed and uh, he's persecuting the Jews, persecuting people who come to Christ in that time. God pours out His judgment, and then at the end Jesus comes back to establish His kingdom on the earth. And I think that's what this is talking about. In verses 26 and 27. It's kind of like, remember, there were 69 weeks and then there's a week, but that week hasn't come yet. We're living in the church age. We're living in kind of a divine parenthesis, so to speak, uh, within God's plan. We've been in the last days ever since Jesus came and died the first time, but that's not culminated until he returns. It says here, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, again, that is fulfilled in one sense. It's 70 AD when the Romans came, but it'll ultimately be fulfilled. And when the Antichrist comes, it says, The end of it shall be with the flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. In other words, after the rapture, the Antichrist makes some kind of peace covenant with Israel at the beginning of it. But then in the middle of the week, he turns on them. says he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. On the wing of the abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4 puts it this way. It says, Let no one deceive you by any means for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. That's what happens in the middle of this time. The Antichrist is in the temple and he demands to be worshipped as God. Stephen Miller summarizes these difficult verses this way. He says, Antichrist's incredible atrocities against his fellow human beings and his attacks upon God himself will include even the idolatrous claim that he is deity with an attempt at forced worship of himself. One who causes desolation refers to Antichrist who will forbid worship and thereby thereby make the temple area desolate or empty. Rather than being an object that desolates in this context, it appears to be the Antichrist himself who desolates. This person's terrible atrocities, the abominations, and the fact that he causes the temple to be desolate because of religious persecution results in the judgment announced in the latter part of the verse. This will be a terrible period in the world's history. But the Lord has decreed that these atrocities will not continue forever. Antichrist's wickedness will last only until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Poured out picturesquely describes the flood of judgment that will overtake the Antichrist. On him is literally on the desolating one, a reference to Antichrist, which will cause the temple to become desolate. And so this... Uh, this judgment is poured out. Revelation chapter nineteen. We probably don't have the time to read it, but Jesus comes back. He defeats his enemies, and uh, you know, including the Antichrist, uh, the Beast, the False Prophet, and and they're placed in hell. And so Dale Davis says this: a final ruler then exalts himself, imposes his authority, forbids true worship, instigates idolatrous worship, and then runs into the meat grinder of God's decree. Predetermined, on target, certain. And it ends in the establishment of the kingdom to fulfill the six things that we read about earlier. The end of rebellion, the end of sin, the establishment of righteousness, the building of the temple, the fulfillment of all prophecies. Why? Because Jesus atoned for our sins on the cross. He won the victory. And now he's inviting us to trust him, to come to him, to be saved. And we can do that and receive grace. Or we can reject him and receive judgment. You see, because God is holy and just and righteous. And he's going to deal with sin. Listen to me. Our sins are either going to be dealt with in Christ through the cross. Or they're going to be dealt with eternally in hell. That's our choices. Because God is holy. So. If if the conviction is that the world seems out of control, but God is fulfilling his sovereign plan of redemption, what's the action? It's that we will trust Jesus, the Messiah, to redeem and deliver us. Are you trusting him? Have you received the forgiveness of sins from him? Is your life centered in the cross? Are you trusting that God is going to fulfill his plan, that he's reliable and trustworthy? You can listen to him. You can follow him. You can rely on him, that you can trust him for the future. Listen, there's a lot of things here. There's details, all this kind of thing that I could have spent more time on. But here's the bottom line. The bottom line is about the cross. It's about the cross. And so I want to end, you know, I don't want to be all about, again, in the weeds with this. I want to end with this. I want to show you about a four-minute video clip of Alistair Begg preaching, and he's talking about the cross. And this is one of the greatest sermon clips, in my opinion, that you could ever see. Think about what he says here. Praise God. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.